Hello, I'm Nassim Risha, the president of the University of Toronto Jungian Association, and welcome, or welcome back, to the second part of my conversation with the artist currently known as Damien Walker. Here, we touch on revelatory experience, psychedelics, art, therapy, and the roles of the modes of art and therapy in dealing with novel and transformative experience. So, I hope you enjoy. So I feel like we're starting to get into the question of maybe what the ethical dimension of this sort of um, revelatory experience is. Uh, before we go there, I want to maybe um, parse things out in a little bit more detail and say, so using one of the first examples, um, if I'm gaining this sudden inexplicable interest in, for example, the book of Ezekiel, um, and I read it, and it really alters my perception of the world, how exactly is that coming about? Uh, what are the processes that are going on as I'm engaging with this, we're calling it a piece of literature, um, and it's altering uh, my consciousness in certain ways? Mm -hmm. So all of the experiences that the Gnosis Network is responsible are involved in this. So you have, for example, um, if you're getting deeply engaged with the text and there's this sort of like immersion and interest and fascination, um, that's like ripe for flow to happen. So you get in flow with the book. Your attention is very rapt. It's like focused on like every word. You're deeply, deeply participating with it. So you're in flow with the text. And then also in um, relation to that, you're also uh, in flow, if you're, say, looking at um, Christian literature, maybe uh, Ezekiel is not the first book you've read, you've had some familiarity before, and that context is what's promoting that fascination for this particular text. Mm -hmm. By having first gotten some familiarity with some of the imagery in Judaism or in Christianity, and by you know, probably having these moments of interest and fascination prior, uh, you're also in a sort of higher dimensional flow state, where um, you sort of come into deep um, fascinated relationship with some of the imagery and then you fall out and you come back into it and you fall out so there's flow happening at different temporal scales there's a very large scale temporal flow where you um, have these small instances where you tap into the world and tap out but while you're tapped into the world um, often there would be a state of flow happening um, in that particular moment and you know if you've ever read a book that you know you just like look up and you're like how did two hours go that sense of like timelessness mm -hmm. um, is a part of the flow state okay and then as it's transforming you there might be like little transformations right you might have these like oh aha oh i get it now oh i get it now oh i get it now so you're having tiny insights um reformulating your cognition mm -hmm. and then if the text is profound enough you can have like deep mystical revelations for example, mm. recently, um, as I've been doing this sacred reading reading, I've also been trying to put elements of it to practice. And I was in a deeply emotional state one day, and I decided to apply that state, and I picked up Philip K. Dick's Vallis, and I read a passage of Vallis, and then I just had a flip in consciousness, and all of a sudden Vallis was like in my room, and I was speaking to this deity, and I would ask it questions, and it would respond as if it were something else. Yeah. And so you might have that with Ezekiel, where you might actually have God reach out of the text and speak to you, right? Revelations um, are very varied. Um, the text of Ezekiel itself has a very visionary, interactive, relational kind of vision. Um, mm. God appears like on a throne with like these weird monster angels at his side, uh, and he kind of possesses Ezekiel as well and acts through Ezekiel. So Ezekiel has to go and like threaten death to some of the religious leaders who are holding back the process and the whole time Ezekiel is like I don't want to do this why am I doing this and then someone drops dead before him and he's like God why are you making me do this <laughs> so there's this kind of like possession state that you can get and that's like a kind of revelation where um, you know you might begin speaking in tongues or if you're writing for example uh, you can read Ezekiel and then do some free writing practice and you might find that deep profound content falls out of you without you even having known that previously uh -huh. um, and then in some cases, you know, if the context is just right, it might scaffold you into the particularly magnanimous experience that people um, call um, mystical union, uh, which I prefer the term union revelation because it is but one of many kinds of revelation, the revelation that all or something is one or that you're with one with something. Um, and that is like just, it's basically like a whole body orgasm and then you feel deeply in touch with that which promoted it. So that's the kind of shape and structure of revelation um, that can be expected in some of the cognitive processes going on. Okay, so it seems to me that you've described 
three sort of different forms of insight that are going on, mm -hmm. um, if I can attempt to, to summarize, while you're engaging with the text. So the first is sort of these little insights, these little aha moments um, that you have where suddenly um, maybe the text makes sense to you, you're able to make sense of it better. Um, and then what seems distinct to me is then this uh, experience, for example, that I'm reading Ezekiel and God seems to be jumping off of the page and speaking to me. Uh, and then finally, this third experience of, of um, you know, this unity, like uh, not only is God speaking to me, I am one with God, mm -hmm. um, you know, I am one with the text, um, what have you. My curiosity is, um, I suppose, how these different forms of insight are related. Are they sort of necessary for each other or are they just sort of different benefits that, that we're getting um, from engagement with mm. the text? So they do all play off the same fundamental cognitive mechanisms, like the ventral attention network that I mentioned is deeply important in all of those. Um, uh -huh. Neuroscientist Michael Gazaniga calls it a circuit breaker because uh, it disrupts the focused attentional mode um, to allow your cognition to be reformulated from something that was outside of focus, right? So this part of your brain also does like attentional capture if something moves in the corner of your eye and now it's your, your head orients and you see it, um, that's like that attentional network reaching out and like pulling something outside inside. Mm. Um, and that's important in all of these, right? So with flow, for example, um, I know Verbeke's written a paper where he talks about it as an insight cascade. And one of the dominant models for understanding flow is as an interplay between the attentional modes characteristic to technic and magic. Technic uh -huh. is, um, that one is called, there's the dorsal attention network, which runs over the top of the left hemisphere. The ventral attention network runs along the side of the right hemisphere, running along the right temporal lobe. And so when you have flow, you have this oscillation between fixed focus and bringing things in from outside. Fixed focus, bringing things in from outside. Uh -huh. And then in mystical experiences, well, the ventral attention network just like overthrows your cognition so radically that the distinctions between self and other break down and objects fall away. Um, it's so significant that like um, there's disruption in networks in the parietal lobe. So uh, being able to make sense of like orientation in space falls away. So you might feel as though you've been transported somewhere else um, below the parietal lobe and right at the bottom of the medial prefrontal cortex. There's an area of your brain really important for understanding time. And that kind of gets like unlocked um, or like removed from network integration when you have these significant shifts in mm. consciousness. Um, so yeah, there are different degrees of magnitude um, of a very similar fundamental process involving uh, these right-oriented attentional networks. Mm. So would we say that a flow state is necessary in order to have these maybe more intense forms of uh, insight or revelation? Or is it just something, one of the ways that uh, uh, it can be engaged? I would say it's one of the ways. Okay. Yeah. And there's different kinds of um, insight that you get from them, I would say, as well. The flow stuff um, brings you often into the body more, flow-oriented practices. Um, usually people jump to things like Tai Chi or yoga. Um, mm -hmm. So there's different kinds of um, gnosis that you can get uh, if you're doing an embodied flow state. That stuff is actually, I think, very important for having uh, the best kinds of revelations um, because there is a deep relationship uh, between body awareness and um, mysticism and mystical experience. Uh huh. And this is maybe coming back to the conversation we had about the different forms of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, that we're maybe having these different insights that are affecting. Uh, I mean, it could be simply um, a propositional knowledge. Suddenly I understand the proposition that's being conveyed by this text, whereas I didn't before. Uh, and you're saying when you get a flow state, uh, then you're starting to get into really transforming something like uh, perhaps participatory knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, that's really great. I think that helps really delineate what um, what exactly these sorts of experiences are doing for us. There's um, so an interesting thing about Christianity in particular is that it uses paradox to make sure that like you can't have propositional relation or, or propositional knowing without having the other kinds because the propositions do not make any sense, mm -hmm. right? It's like. You know, so firstly, we got the virgin birth thing, and then we have the idea that, like, I am both a subject of original sin and horribly marred, but then also Jesus died for my sins, so I'm mm -hmm. free? Like, which one of those holds? It doesn't make any sense. And then there's the whole complex of, like, well, God created us imperfect, and because of how he created us, he's mad at us, and then he 
incarnated to sacrifice himself for himself because we couldn't meet standards that he had created. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but that's the point, right? In order to mm. understand it, um, to understand Christian dogma, you first take in a bunch of nonsensical propositions and then you struggle with them deeply. And then struggling with paradox, it's like... Um, it's like a, a tool, like a Zen Cohen, right? Meant to shatter uh, the technic side, right? You might try to like analyze in terms of propositional value each of the relationships between uh, Christian dogma, but that's just not really gonna get you anywhere. You actually have to go through that like existential transformation. Um, and when the information makes sense in, a, in an embodied participatory way, then the propositions are like, you're like, oh, now I get it, now I see. And I remember listening to a talk with um, Jonathan Peugeot. He's like a Christian iconographer who's, you know, come into the sort of U of T cognition sphere via John Verbeke and Jordan Peterson. Mm. And I was listening to one of his talks and he was chatting with another guy and they were both like, yeah, you know, after being become Christian, it's like, you know, people are like, do you believe that stuff? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't even really know what belief means anymore. <laughs> and like, the answer is that you're just not making the right distinctions and it's participatory slash perspectival knowledge and it actually isn't technically true at like a literal propositional level. But in the past, this distinction has not really been made or it's not been made mm. clearly. Christianity does use deceit and lies a lot, right? Christ is a great deceiver, liar, insulter, manipulator, etc. And those techniques are deeply embodied in Christian practice. Okay. Can, what are some examples of that? Um, so Christ, for example, he does this thing where he talks about the parable of the sower. He talks about like a mustard seed and throwing the seed in a bunch of different places. And then afterwards, the disciples are like, so Jesus, what does that mean? And he's like, what do you mean? Are you, are you dumb? And then they're like, no, we're just confused. Why do you speak in parable? He's like, look, most people are idiots and they're not going to get it. So it doesn't really matter if I tell them the truth. What matters more is to use charismatic story to get them to follow along anyways. Because if I told them the straight truth, there's really no guarantee that they would follow. So I just got to, you know, be charismatic about it. But look, you guys are special, so I'll tell you what it means. Mm. Yeah. And so we can think of this as a form of deception. Yes. Mm. Right, where in this case, um, I guess the deception is that the, the, in some sense, the narrative, the charisma of the storytelling uh, is uh, sort of misaligned with the actual uh, truth of, of the statements that are being conveyed. Well, the... The truth is there, right? There is, like, legitimate information. He's not saying mm -hmm. anything, like, false per se, but he is saying things that he knows other people won't understand. There is, like, a sort of elitism about it, right? Mm. Um, just like with Christian dogma, in order to grasp it, you have to undergo some kind of existential transformation. Yeah. Similarly with Jesus, and he, he's using this technique, right? It's not like... There's the classic statement, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it says, like, artists use lies to tell the truth, mm -hmm. right? And so the distinction between, like, lie and... Um, you know, directly true statements, like that distinction isn't even very clear, right? So using uh -huh. this, it's not like Christ is morally culpable for this. Um, there might be things about his tactics that we might have to struggle with again, but, um, you know, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is not like a literally true story, but there is deep truth in it. So there are lies being told to tell the truth. And this is a, a theme in V for Vendetta as well, which is a great revelation in that particular problem. Mm-hmm. It's interesting trying to make some connections, I guess, to other forms of literature. I studied poetry for a while, and so that's sort of part of my, uh, where my expertise lies. And I think you see an interesting tendency in some 20th century poetry, for example, of having poetry that just grammatically doesn't make sense, uh, for instance, or even if the grammatic structures make sense, um, you're not able to parse it just as simply representative in the way that we will we would you know normally read just literal language, and, and I really have the sense that the intention behind that, or at least its uh, its effect, intentional or not, is to really trigger these sorts of inside experiences where you need a reframing in order to understand what's mm -hmm. being brought by the text. Yeah, um, it's curious that in a way. Uh, we've been talking about the Old Testament and it having that same sort of effect. And it's almost as if morality is this sort of grammar that's being violated in a way in those texts. 
um, mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that we're sort of being caught by the, the grammar of conventional morality and it's making these texts sort of incomprehensible, almost in the same way that a, a grammatically incomprehensible poem is incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the necessity for this this reframing in order to make sense and have the sort of experience that that text promises. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the moral ambiguity is a very important feature and that, you know, revelation happens across time. Like we need to dialogue with the source of revelation for sometimes thousands of years before it's like fully fleshed out. Mm. And so that moral ambiguity encoded in Christian myth becomes into like great clarity with Nietzsche's idea of like being beyond good and evil. And that idea, though, was very common to many Christian heresies. There's a medieval Christian heresy called the Brotherhood of the Free Spirit. And they thought, well, uh -huh. if I am in God's grace and saved, every single desire that I have is a part of God. And mm -hmm. therefore, I should always do anything that I want ever, right? Including like lie, cheat and steal and whatever. Uh huh. And then it is the most horrifying with like the Protestants who murdered all the American indigenous people. Because they, for example, would look at the texts and say, see that, you know, God solves his problems with genocide all of the time. And then also there's the Protestant work ethic thing where it's like, I am more morally valuable if I'm putting the land to productive work. And they're like, wow, look at all these like lazy ass people over here, like not doing anything with these forests. God definitely wants me to put it to productive use because I can. And like, look, everyone is dying of disease. Clearly the hand of God has brought a plague to clear the land for us. Why don't right. we just finish the job with guns and smallpox? Uh -huh. So it cashes out in a very unfortunate way, right? And like mm. with Kierkegaard, also this idea is like extremely clear. The absolute transcendence of the individual's relation with God um, is deeply important to his work. As so he talks about like Abraham being the greatest man, but also he almost murdered his son. How do we reconcile that? Well, we don't. Um, the idea of that story, the point of the story, he says, is to you know do that shattering thing where we come into an existential relation where I fully stand before God and I realize what that means. And I realize that that means that I will have to do things that are morally incomprehensible to people. And uh -huh. when we talk about ethics, we have like, um, you know, the standards of the universal. And then we have ethics in terms of that relation with God. Mm -hmm. And if Abraham disclosed himself to the universal, right, if he told Sarah that he wanted to go sacrifice Isaac, or if he told Isaac, then, you know, they would think him a monster, but he keeps his mouth shut, right? He doesn't say anything. So the point of fear and trembling is basically like, yeah, you're going to have to do things that people are not going to understand. And whether or not that's actually what God wants is going to be really hard to determine. So just keep your mouth shut and do what you feel is good. Yeah, so I think this brings us to I, maybe the obvious question, which is that if I'm having these sorts of uh, revelatory experiences, these sorts of revelatory relations to text, do I have to be worried that I'm perhaps going to, in some way, you know, relive these historical nightmares, for example, of the, you know, the colonialist who is just genocidal or something like that? Um, and how do we grapple with that question? There's a guy named Roberto Unger. He's a philosopher at Harvard. He's a philosopher of law, but he wrote a great book called The Religion of the Future. Uh -huh. And in that book, he says, well, we have a problem with the sort of mythic dimension of the religious attempts in the future that we might try to generate. And that problem is that, you know, we need some kind of good news to like bolter, bolster us against the universal problems of like the insatiability of desire, the groundlessness of meaning. Mm. But the better the news, the less credible that news is, the less reason there is to believe it. Mm. And so Christianity gives us the best news of all, he says, that we have a friend in charge of the universe and that he created us out of love. Right. But is that true? Probably not. So there's like a structure, there's like a, an ontological and cognitive structure that I think is deeply important for making the most of a sort of mythic and participatory approach to uh, revelation because revelation fundamentally is like an artistic mode of knowing and we're going to be having visions of like you know oh i contacted the pleiadians and they have told me that i am uh, part of the next future of star beings i'm an indigo child and whatever but like those beliefs suck and like the new age also <laughs> suck and like our fascists now for some reason because of the QAnon thing. So it's like a huge mess. Um, and I think that basically if the news is like good at the highest scale, don't believe it. We have mm. to encompass our new myths in horror, right? So the structure is something like Lovecraft's universe where, 
you know, the thing that transcends the universe, is that our friend? I don't know, probably not. I suspect it's a lot more like Azathoth, the blind idiot god with, like, unimaginable flutes trumpeting nothing forever. And if your union revelation is that you're in union with the universe, well, did that revelation threaten maddening horror? No, then probably you didn't actually unite with the universe. Like, where do you get off thinking that you legitimately did that, right? Mm. Um, Lovecraft is an interesting example, of course, because these sorts of beliefs seem to coexist, uh, you know, in him with, uh, of course other very terrible beliefs, the sorts of things we're trying to get away from, you know, yes. this awful xenophobia, racism, etc. Um, so, I mean, rather than turn him away from, uh, I guess, that that view, they seem to have uh, supported it or at least tolerated it, right? Um, so, what sense do we make of that, mm -hmm. I guess? No one revelation is complete. They all have pieces of the story. Mm -hmm. And Lovecraft, given his propensity to see the world in terms of otherness and horror, it makes him very well attuned to, very receptive to, um, things that are true at a greater cosmological scale. Mm -hmm. And even in Lovecraft's systems, as we emanate from the um, broadest point into our, you know, immediate spatial coordinates, the entities in the universe become increasingly more like us and increasingly more capable of care. And he includes in this category, like, the gods of Earth, which are like the Jungian archetypes, the dreams. They live in our dreams and we can interact with them as if they were people, although right. for him they don't care about us. For him, it's like horror and madness all the way down, and the best that we can hope to do is to remain sufficiently ignorant that we never even glimpse the truth. Mm -hmm. So there is deep truth in Lovecraft, but there's not, you know, he, he doesn't have all of the truth. And Lovecraft has influenced others, right? So there is, um, a, there's like a, a growth to Revelation that we have. People build upon Revelation, which is also what we see in the Bible. We have the initial Revelations of Abraham, and then we have the Revelations of Moses, and the Revelations of Isaiah, and they each build on this fundamental thing. And they don't even all say things that are consistent. Sometimes they say things that are contradictory because Revelation particularizes to this particular moment and, you know, it has to bend in certain ways to meet the cognitive contours of those people and the context that they're living in. And so Revelation particularizes in Lovecraft in a particular way. Um, and that gives us really interesting things when we think about um, the grand cosmological scale. And that's really important to ground our things, um, like our new myths, in a kind of uh, cosmic horror because it keeps us humble, right? If I really believe that the universe is all love and that if I just have faith, everything's going to look out for me or that, you know, the, a common thing on ketamine is like the coincidence control entities where, you know, you meet the aliens that are like driving fate and you're like, oh, those things are probably great and I can just like live a good life and maybe I live in California and I'm, you know, part of Silicon Valley and I think the universe is love, but I'm like working for Amazon or something. Right. So yeah, again, if the if the news is too good to be true, it's probably not true. Um, at least not at a universal scale. Now, people like Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman has very clearly built his Sandman universe um, on the basic foundations of the Lovecraftian universe. Mm -hmm. um, so I just picked up Sandman Overture, and it's great. There's this thing where, um, at some point in time, um, an aspect of Dream, Dream is the main character, his name is also Morpheus, he's a personification of all Dream, and Dream lives, um, he's like one of the Endless, the Endless, um, so there's like a, an emanative creative process where we have like um, unconscious things that like sleep beneath space um, that's like a grand meditator the universe is described as a mind meditating and all reality are just um, distractions flitting across the meditating mind of god mm -hmm. and then we have like unnameable horrors closest to the silent godhead and then we have the first circle and the first circle is like um, the magnificent aspects of god that are created um, that are associated with the christian god so uh, in this book um Dream speaks to glory, and he's even called Shekinah by one of the facets of Dream, and that's the name that is used in Judaism to refer to the face of God, so there's like an explicit recognition of that connection. And then beyond that we have the Endless, and the Endless are these personified forces that underlie all life, so we have like Dream, Desire, Delirium, uh, Destruction, mm -hmm. Death, and they're always there until that universe ends. And the drama in Overture is that the universe might be about to end, and so the Endless will die. And so that's, time also has a very weird structure in this, so 
Dream dies at one point, but that ripples back in time to Dream in 1915, and he's warped into this zone where all of the aspects of Dream are present. So we have like a cat dream, and we have a human dream, and we have a robot dream, and an alien dream. Hundreds and hundreds of dreams representing how dreams manifest in every life form in the universe. And he speaks to a primordial dream who just has like a cloak that like flows off into tentacles and he has like a weird red eye and like weird tentacle face. And Dream is like, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm Dream, obviously. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was you when we first started. And he's like, yeah, I'm the dream of those like unnameable, unmentionable monsters that sleep beneath the universe. <laughs> um, so I think that is like a really nice way of building on Lovecraft's universe. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so for example, Jung was quite critical, I guess, of movements in Christianity uh, that sought to disown the, uh, I guess, morally undesirable aspects of God that we see more in the, in the Old Testament. And he thought, you know, this sort of one-sided view of God uh, as, as sort of pure good, pure light, pure benevolence was not serving us, that in fact, uh, in order to have a uh, a really uh, comprehensive worldview, we had to have some image of God as containing, you know, he, he would say perhaps shadowed or dark uh, elements as well as the sort of light ones that are more comprehensible to us. Mm -hmm. It seems that uh, perhaps we're almost getting a sort of reaction in the other direction with Lovecraft, uh, whereas, you know, the gods, the, the greater beings in the universe that... Uh, that we're able to comprehend or, or not even comprehend that we're able to envision are purely destructive, purely malevolent as far as, you know, our perspective as humans. Uh, yeah. And I'm wondering if perhaps if s with someone like Gaiman, we're getting a bit more of a balanced view where uh, in his world, it seems in his universe, there's kind of this incomprehensible core, I guess, similar to Lovecraft, but uh, we're seeing maybe a little bit more how as the world gets closer to us, it becomes more comprehensible and perhaps uh, more friendly to us as well. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And even within Lovecraft's universe, though, like Azathoth never comes to us. But if we go to it, like imagine jumping mm. into a black hole thinking you're going to find transcendence. Sure. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, definitely Lovecraft is most famous for and I think probably was most invested in these grand stories of the horrors of the universe, mm -hmm. Cthulhu, etc. Uh, but there are these perhaps less um, investigated, I guess, stories in his oeuvre that... Um, yeah, are a little bit lighter in tone, yeah, a little yeah. bit more, a little bit more magical, almost. I want to say. Yeah, there's one called Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which takes place entirely in the dream world, and there's this fun little episodes where these like cats can jump to the moon, and then so this the main character is kidnapped by frog people who live on the moon, and the cats uh -huh. jump into the moon and like save him, which is like a very cute and funny little episode. Right. But the point about Gaiman, like, yeah, I think there is like a little bit more balance there. Um, Dream and the Endless, they're still somewhat um, morally ambiguous characters, but mm -hmm. they are more invested, right? And it's part of like DC's vertigo. So Sandman is supposed to be um, ostensibly a superhero, and he does take that role in the main body of um, Sandman work. In the Overture, he is more of a sort of, it, it's very cosmically oriented. It happens out in deep space. But with the main body, he does show up in people's lives and you know, there are, for example, um, he does things where he, like, creates a character. I think his name is Corin or something, Corinth? The, or the Corinthian, that's it. And he's, like, a nightmare creature. And so Dream is trying to, like, um, he, he populates the dream world with creatures that can provide us lessons. And so the Corinthian, he has eyes for, t or teeth for eyes. And he's a serial killer. And before he kills you, he eats your eyes with his eye teeth. And he was supposed to be locked in the dream world um, and to just educate people in an important revelation that could come from horrifying experience. Um, and it's a fundamentally teaching function, though, but the Corinthian then manages to escape and get out into the real world. And there's a funny episode in one of the initial Sandman comics where there's like a serial killer convention that the Corinthian goes to and he's like really famous and whatever because he's like super brutal. And so Dream has to be like, oh, God, I made this mess. I have to like, you know, go rein this villain in. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so he he's also involved in like, making sure that dreams stay where they are appropriate. Hmm. 
Um, so there is like a kind of concern at least. And so it's interesting because in Overture as well, where we have all of these different representations of like the dream of cats and the dream of aliens and the dream of robots. Um, as we participate in dream, we transform it into something that it may not be on its own, right? There is a primordial of crafty in dream, but as you and I evolve um, and we phase dream through our experience, dream particularizes through us and we can dialogue with dream, mm. right? Dream becomes a different thing in its manifestation through us. And I think like that's really cool as well. Yeah, there's another connection that I uh, sort of am feeling like I want to run by you as well, which is that I can't help but think that the view, perhaps, that an entity like Azathoth has toward humanity is in some way parallel to the view that we, if we are operating purely in terms of, of techne, uh, in terms of technical mm -hmm. consciousness, have toward like a forest, for example, yeah. uh, almost this this very uh, removed view that is perhaps perhaps not actually malevolent so much as it is totally um, just sort of in, incomprehensible, totally at odds with what mm -hmm. we might say is the reality of that uh, system with which we're interacting. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very core part of the book Technic and Magic by Federico Campagna. Uh -huh. So he argues that, you know, Technic and Magic each have a particular kind of destiny for the world. Magic constantly renews life in the world, but Technic will annihilate it at all because it props up this like system of relations, which it then substitutes for reality and you know, I once talked to a mathematician um, who's part of like the Qualia Research Institute, and he just uh -huh. embodied technics so deeply. Hmm. And he was like, "Yeah, man, like math literally is everything. Once we get like the full mathematical description, like that is it." And I was like, "No, there's like a lot more. You know, you can't tell me what it's like to be the universe by describing it to me in math, for example. You don't get that perspectival information transmitted with mathematics. It might afford different kinds of perspective, but it also makes opaque certain kinds of perspective." Uh -huh. But what Technic does, you know, and so Campania talks about it in terms of, you know, it originates in a sort of cognitive relational mode, and then we interface it with our institutions, and so it becomes a reality system, where Technic becomes embodied a lot, out, like, in the earth and in the apparatus of, like, science and in industry and technology, and so it's like, Technic is like a dream of ourselves that we... Uh, realize and instantiate in our institutions and in our cultural relations and then it carries out its creative process where it tries to assimilate reality into its self-contained system of representation but because it can't actually do that it will not stop until everything is dead and so he says that it technic ends in life technic ends where magic begins mm -hmm. um, but and that's the sort of like ineffable creative pulse of life um, mm. you know, the, the knowledge of the body, which is beyond proposition. And, oh yeah, so he, he says that the, the last stage of like creative emanation and technic is life as vulnerability. So life is a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, he also describes technic in terms of, um, he's like, yeah, you know, we are each like through the institutions of work and culture, like we are each, um, yoked to the torture wheel of technic. Um, and our screams may be silent, like, um, like the tree falling in the woods where there is no one to hear it, or like the stoic um, suicide, but they are all screams nonetheless. So he envisions um, all of us to be, you know, s deeply screaming through our souls in some <laughs> sense, which I, I think is precisely correct, mm. right? And that's the, the blackened fingers on the hand of um, the human organism. Um, that technic is reaching further and further into its flames. And only after everything has been annihilated and described will it say, yeah, see, I was right. But at that point, there will be nothing left. Uh, okay, I want to make um, maybe a slight divergence here and try and relate these terms that we have, technic and magic, to two terms that uh, I think come up more in maybe Jungian texts, for example, and that I'm wondering if you've thought a bit about uh, yourself. And these two terms that I have in mind are uh, logos and eros, mm. which seem, you know, at least on the surface, to map on uh, pretty reasonably to to technic and magic. So I guess I'm, my initial question is, uh, what do you make of that connection? Is it a reasonable connection, um, et cetera? My intuition is that the connection is a little bit forced because logos is like, well, I guess in, it is a kind of process in some views, but it is like fundamentally related to a kind of knowledge. Uh -huh. So I would contrast logos with gnosis, for example. Um, but in that frame, like, how can I make sense of it? There definitely is something deeply erotic about magic, mm -hmm. right? Because it is very intimate and participatory. 
And the fun thing about um, the Gnosis network, um, which really deeply relies on that ventral attention network, and also um, networks in the right temporal lobe, which um, makes sense of like social relations, processing like the tone and meaning of speech, and also uh, passing information from feeling states in the body, including social relational states, up to explicit consciousness. Mm. Um, a lot of people describe union with God extremely erotically. Like St. Augustine, for example, says um, to love God is the greatest romance. Um, alchemists seek the holy marriage, right? Like they're literally trying to like be his wife. You know, there's something super queer about mysticism. A lot <laughs> sure. of men are trying to be like, be my daddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's because there is like neural overlap with the social relational systems in our cognition and the part of us that makes mystical revelation possible. And so we feel it er erotically in our body. Um, and it very much drives um, our existential momentum uh, via the sort of erotic romantic drive uh, whereas logos is more like i'm gonna like sit and think about the relations and you're not really pulled towards the logos mm -hmm. um, logos is like the order that you observe but eros is what pulls you towards that kind of order and not that one mm. part of the reason that i bring up those terms is that i've heard recently a lot of people talk about trying to build more uh erotic communities erotic not in the sense of sexual but erotic in the sense of having this sort of a relational connectivity um, and there's I think this sense um, that this is what is going to help us through the present crisis that that we're in in some way uh, yeah so I guess I, I'm trying to parse out maybe what of that is potentially being given to us by a more uh, magical view of the world and uh, what exactly the distinctions are, how far um, cultivating that sort of view, that sort of relationship is going to get us toward this vision of, of perhaps mm -hmm. the, the more erotic community. Right. So again, the, the higher order lesson of incomprehensibility and horror is deeply important because mm -hmm. what it teaches us is humility and also that nothing can be trusted. So eroticism even can be instrumentalized by technic to force its process to happen even quicker. I was just talking to my friend Kyle last night. He just got a job um, with the government working um, in a sort of like think tank to foster um, technological and economic innovation. There's a lot of buzzwords there. And one of the buzzwords he told me about was uh, the idea of the cluster. So rather than having a whole bunch of people working on a singular kind of technology across the world, you would want to create like a, a little tiny village where, you know, people working on a specific technological problem are all um, in very close proximity. Ah. So even there, we can see that um, having a sort of like erotic community um, might foster innovation. And in fact, it would because, um, you know, the eroticism being a part of um, the sort of like mystical revelation set of functions in our cognition um, uh, is also deeply important in creativity, right? Create creativity is like a revelatory act. Mm -hmm. And so we can enhance people's creative solutions to even technological problems. Um, but that's not necessarily like in our best interest. So we can definitely be um, exploited in terms of uh, erotic community. So we can't just trust that on its own. There are like deeper, higher dimensional things that we have to take into consideration. So it could be the case that having tight-knit, erotic, local communities um, is both a part of the road to heaven and to hell. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with the polyphasic shift. And a lot of um, talk about mystical experience is like too positive. Um, that thing with um, Jung that you mentioned about, you know, the amoral aspects of God being deeply important um, resonates very strongly here. The definition of a mystical experience used to assess if they're happening in psychedelic therapy includes deeply positive emotions as a necessary factor. Oh, that's worrisome. Yeah, it's just super incomplete. And like I'm telling you, like some of the most profound revelations are horrifying. Like yeah. I love horror. I love horror fiction. I love heavy metal. And like for me, I've been able to like encounter Lovecraftian deities and it's like sick. I've encountered like um, carnivorous tree beasts that mutilate people. And I don't know, for me, that's just kind of fun. I have like a high tolerance for horror um, and I understand how to process those revelations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's like weird, surreal, um, uncomfortable aspects about those. And if you can't sit with those, right, and you maybe would like, you know, direct somebody away from them into a more positive gestalt um, if you were in a therapy session. Yeah, there's ways that that can be extremely nefariously used. Um, yeah. 
I hear that absolutely. I think I can speak just in terms of, for example, the most meaningful mystical psychedelic experiences that I've had. I can say that they have had this component of strong positive emotion at some point, but it's always been countervailed often uh, more strongly by real, you know, negative um, painful uh, emotional experience, really. Mm. I mean, I don't think I've ever had, uh, you know, one of these sort of meaningful experiences that was just, uh, you know, a feeling of, I don't know, God descending upon me and lifting me from my pit or whatever, you know? It's like I always had to go deeper into the pit first. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so I'm wondering if, if perhaps when we think of these things, if we really have to consider, you know, for... A mystical experience to be the most valuable for us if perhaps it needs to have both positive emotional experiences and and the inverse mm -hmm. if they both actually have to be necessary yeah i think so and not necessarily for everybody right the christian mm -hmm. solution to the horrifying aspects of god was to distribute the appreciation of that side across the community so the people who are in the upper echelons of the church recognize the Mysterium Tremendum a Fascinant, the term by Rudolf Otto meant to describe the singularly daunting experiences which are so horrifying they would be offensive to anybody unable to see anything of God except the most pleasing face he puts out to the people. Right. So you can imagine, for example, like a therapeutic model of the integration of altered states of consciousness into our culture is just not well positioned to make the most of the polyphasic imagination because mm -hmm. you can't really get ethics approval to put people in a Lovecraftian nightmare scenario while they're <laughs> on acid. You just, it's not going to happen. Uh, and like, for example, like, I think it happens organically. Right. Uh, it might happen spontaneously, yeah. but we also want to have, I think like, you know, like the Ellicinian mysteries, you go to mm -hmm. like a temple, you have periods of preparation. There are like theatrical performance art things that are happening while you're on drugs to guide mm. you to become in touch with a mystery outside of yourselves. People might be able to get in touch with mysteries in their own being in therapy that might be horrifying, but to connect to the transpersonal, I think we have to move beyond therapy and into something that's more um, religiously oriented, which I imagine to be something like um, an immersive arts institution, right? If we imagine um, Disney World plus the university, but it cares more about your well-being than your capital. Um, we have the religion of the future. I think that would be amazing. And then, you know, if you had the Star Wars universe um, and then you participate in a bunch of the media, you would become eligible to have a trip presided over by the Jedi Council. Um, mm. Or, you know, I'd love to do something with like the Sandman universe and then like dream, destiny, destruction. They come to you, they speak to you in the grips of these altered states of consciousness. It's just like so hard to like get the approval in a therapeutic context or in a strictly scientific context to test the efficacy of those kinds of practices that do mm -hmm. um, play upon um, discomfort, surrealism, and horror. Um, so I think that a, a more arts-oriented approach is going to be deeply helpful. Yeah, in, in in making the most of the mystical because we we can more readily feature all aspects of the god object, let's say, than a strictly therapeutic concept. Uh, yeah, I think this is the point where I am going to want to try and advocate for certain views of therapy and what the goals of therapy are that are maybe more in line with what we want for fostering this sorts of experience, as opposed to other views of therapy that I think are falling into the sort of traps that you delineate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, when I think of, for example, a therapist like we can st stick with Jung, I would be much more inclined to think that Jung operating as a therapist would be taking this position that more analytically oriented therapists often take, that they are sort of just a guide uh, and a fellow traveler sort of helping you sort of remain steady as you move through these very difficult psychic experiences. I think that that's something that, that could certainly be valuable in terms of, you know, helping to mediate these sorts of experiences. whereas. Uh, yeah, I would be a little bit more mistrustful of, I don't want to, you know, put any names, but for example, a, a therapist whose view of therapy is simply that they are there to uh, ameliorate my suffering. Uh, mm. They are there to make me feel less bad. I have to imagine that the sorts of uh, experiences that would be created by that sort of relationship would be quite different. 
um, and I'd be a little bit worried that they could be sort of one-sided in the way that we've been talking mm. about. So I want to bring back like a, another point that I had mentioned earlier, where the most influential therapists are often not the ones who are well-meaning, right? So, you know, right now and across all of time, there's always going to be people who are like really extremely effective, good, wise therapists. Sure. But there seems to be a pattern across history, especially 20th century history, where yeah. the wise ones who bring us good insights are then co-opted by corporations and governments and used nefariously. Yeah, and I think I think the issue here is maybe not the one of good intentions. I think that often, of course, people who want to prevent suffering often do have the best intentions, but I think that partly the reason uh, that they become more prominent is again, like we've been talking about, I guess, this prevalence of of technical capacity mm -hmm. that comes. I mean, if you have a therapeutic modality that is saying, I will give you the technical capacity to make people more functional in these easily measurable ways. Right. That's it's going to be, I think, necessarily a sort of one sided therapy. But of course, you see how that becomes more popularized and more yeah. uh, influential in some senses, at least. Mm -hmm. And there's a book called Stealing Fire, which is like the Bible for this kind of thing. It was written mm. by uh, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotlin. And these are like, you know, Silicon Valley types who are just like really excited about performance enhancement. And they even talk about how like the military are like hacking into consciousness, consciousness altering technologies to like, you know, using like neurofeedback technologies to make people like learn languages quicker or to learn how to like pilot drones quicker. So, you know, <laughs> the technical aspects of these kinds of skills of consciousness alteration, even psychedelics are very domain general. And mm. the well-intentioned should be careful because, yeah, like, your intentions really don't mean shit at the end of the day. Like, 50 years after you die, history might have washed over your influence, right? Like, you are nothing almost as soon as you're dead unless you've had, like, a deep impact on a lot of people. <laughs> and even that, a thousand years down the road, like, maybe actually you contributed to something that was horrifying even though your intentions were good, right? That's how sure. the road to hell is paved. And one of the deep mysteries and the sort of um, moral incomprehensibility about Christianity uh, is that... You know, that which seems the most intuitively good to do is actually the devil. <laughs> and the more complicated thing, which seems horrifying at first, is uh, the stuff that's actually on the side mm, of the good. Yeah. I think there's very something very deep with that. And so, you know, that's why I think, like, humility and horror are so deeply important at the largest um, frame of reference. Because, yeah, I mean, even if you are a good therapist and even if you are, like, well-intentioned, like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Sure, of course, of course you can just as easily be contributing to uh, some tendency that might ultimately be quite detrimental, deleterious. Yeah, and like there are points in culture where it becomes so oppressive that the rational thing to do is to throw a Molotov cocktail into someone's window. And no therapist is really ever going to be able to tell you that, right? They might agree with you, but there are professional limits on the advice that they can give you. But like... That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We have many limitations on the things that we allow our professionals to do yeah. uh, for good reason. Um, but And that's the thing about the Kierkegaard mystery where it's like you just got to keep silent about some uh -huh. things. Yeah. There's some things that therapy cannot even help you with. There's some things that nobody can help you with. Right. Well, before I say anything that's going to draw the attention of the ethics committee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I got into the uh, arts instead of science. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I suppose I, I, I just want to ask... Um, as we're starting to move toward the end, if there's anything else, any other topics that you wanted to cover, that you wanted to touch in on again before we wrap up? Yeah, I think I want to emphasize, like, you know, everybody has a revelation that is particular to them. Mm -hmm. And the revelations that I most deeply re resonate with are, like, the ones about incomprehensibility and horror and, like, difficult things, which is um, a part of an archetype that I call the cosmic trickster, um, which is, like, a, the midwife of worlds that is necessarily horrifying. Um, so when I speak, I, I do kind of embody that, right? So this is why I focus on, like, well, it doesn't matter what you do. Everything might be horrible at the end of the day, right? Like, that's part of a tactic to foster the kind of humility that enables the cosmic trickster to carry its thing out. And I don't necessarily advocate everybody take the same approach that I do, but I mm -hmm. do think that to counterbalance um, the more positive bias in institutions like therapy, for example, um, we really do need um, like a commune of like antagonistic, anarchistic art priests um, who use strange methods to help people break down their categories and enter into a world that fundamentally transcends logic, transcends reason. 
And there is a difficulty when it comes to fully embodying um, or rather grasping these, you know, higher order mysteries of horror mm. where the, the propositions, they sound terrifying. They sound like they suck. And, you know, I definitely think that it is wise sometimes to be like, yeah, sometimes you got to like, you know, cause shit. But the reality is in the body, right? And so that's the thing. There's this interesting relationship like the, with the cosmic trickster. There is a point where you move past horror and then you can laugh at it. And that's mm. when you've got the mystery. So if anybody is listening and is finding some of these things antagonistic, try to think about them in terms of like how they might be funny. From what perspective, from what vantage point could you laugh at horror? Mm. And that's the perspective that will allow the mystery of the cosmic trickster archetype to most effectively throw into the body and to create the existential shift that I think can help take people off the track of good intentions paving to hell um, and then move into things where explicit intentions aren't really relevant to the path that are being walked on which is also like a weird way to say that but i feel the weirdness perhaps embodies the point so i'll leave it there sure yeah one of the things that you seem to be saying as jung would put it is perhaps that there needs to be some form of compensation for the kind of one-sidedness that we're seeing in a lot of our disciplines and a lot of our endeavors today. Yeah, and man, I just got a book called Evil Media, which is, I'm so excited to read it. It's like a digital mm. media theory book published by MIT Press 2012, so it's fairly relevant and recent. And yeah, I really like that approach um, where they're talking about, it's basically like, imagine if media were the devil, and then they sort of use a sort of um, theological kind of way of understanding, but for them, they're like, yeah, so there is a kind of ontotheological onto imperative already happening in our discourse on science and media and technology. For example, Google's maxim is don't be evil, which sets you up in a sort of like theological position where, okay, now everything that we do is justified because we are explicitly intending not to do evil. And so, you know, the evil is the other and we are the good. Right. So when you break down the rhetoric in science and technology, there are like fundamentally theological questions that are being glossed over as yeah. if you could somehow understand evil yeah, and good only technically. Simply legislate it. Don't do evil. And that's, yeah, yeah that's all we need. Then you're good. Mm -hmm. And then it's like a uh, guilt laundering, right? <laughs> Mm. Yes, yes, that's a wonderful point. Okay, well, perhaps that's the note on which we should uh, wrap things up. Before we do, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity for any final words or uh, if there's anything, any projects of yours, for example, that you want to plug that we haven't talked about already uh, or that you want to reiterate or places that people can find more of your work. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just say I have a website um, which currently is uh, dgreg.com. And how is that spelled? Oh, uh, G-R-E-I-G. There's a silent I in my name. And I have a newsletter there. So um, if anyone wants to sign up, they can follow that. I'm hoping to have my book published in a few months. I'm like almost done, finally. And as for other projects, I don't want to speak about it too much because I have a very broad imagination and a lot of intentions, um, too many to fully embody. So I will let reality speak for itself as time goes. Okay, wonderful. So we have this website, D greig.com uh, where people can sign up for your newsletter in the future hopefully and keep abreast of some of your work and also uh, we have this manuscript uh, which has just been finished and is heading into publication shortly uh, and that we perhaps have the working title for that we mentioned br briefly before which was Illumination Games. Illumination Games. And I suppose last note is the framing of the title is meant to be clear that like all of our aspirations for enlightenment are games and to take them as such. Don't take them too seriously, technological, religious, or otherwise. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time to talk to me. Dan, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, thank you for your attention and please have a wonderful day.